when we come to a practice like this, come to a retreat like this, really because of some kind of um, malaise, nobody comes to a practice or a retreat like this because everything is going swimmingly. We come because we're unsatisfied by the conditions of our life, mostly by the inner conditions of our life, even if those feel like they're being triggered partly by outer conditions. And by the sense, uh, the intuition, the hope that uh, an inner transformation of practice will make the difference to that malaise, that existential unease. Existential unease means a certain unease about existence and most particularly about my existence. <coughs> That's certainly the way I came to Dharma practice through a very uh, uncomfortable, restless, uh, agitated kind of I don't think I called it this at the time, but existential malaise. <laughs> at the time, I think I just called it, oh, I want to get away from here. I don't want to go to university. don't want to do what my parents want me to do. I don't want to get a job. And so, like that, I kind of went off with a sort of restless, uh, searching spirit but without really knowing why or what for. And having found Dharma practice and um, kind of uh, found a certain, not really an answer to that existential malaise, but much more a way of recognizing that and a way of responding to it, which turns out to be much more useful than an answer. And that's part actually of what I want to speak about this evening, our, our the unsatisfactory reliance on answers. <coughs> if only it were as simple, right, as an answer. If there were an answer, believe me, I'd do my best to give it to you. And it seems as if it's certainly been the case for me that, that uh, finding a way to ongoingly and continually listen to and uh, find out about and respond to this, the existential question of being here, of having a human consciousness, human experience, etc., has, has really been a way to to meet and open up that malaise. That's what Dharma practice is for. It's interesting in, as mindfulness practices are, are, are kind of appear in more and more of a secular environment and more and more in the health and education and the workplace, all of which places where they can have a lot of benefit. And, it's, it's, uh, and I'm kind of involved in some of that uh, movement as well. And yet also I, we, there's a lot of kind of a promo 
for the benefits of mindfulness in various ways that don't seem to have much to do with existential malaise, but they're more to do with sleeping better, being more productive, improving your sex life. I mean, there's, there's an ever-lengthening list. Some of the benefits are dubious at best. <laughs> and those things may happen as as um, side effects, really. But what Dharma practice is really aiming at is the existential discomfort of questioning being alive. And we notice that being in retreat. Right? We come to a meditation practice, we come to a retreat with some idea of finding peace, as somebody was saying earlier in a group. And only to find that peace seems rather elusive. We come to a meditation practice and we hear about presence and relaxing into and being with. Only to find a, a, a lot of friction with our life where that being with, that relaxing into, seems very elusive. On the one hand, we long for peace, we might say. We long for an existential rest. A rest from the trouble of me. The questioning of me. The struggling with me. The trying to get things right for me. And yet, however much we long for that, when we have pretty much as supportive conditions as we could muster for that, we find that the the propensity we have to not rest, to not relax, is very strong, very strongly habituated. Because to rest, to stop, is very existentially challenging. We long for the thoughts to stop. Often people will say, oh my, so much chatter, some of us have been saying. If only it would stop, we say. And yet I'm sure some of you have had the experience of it stopping. And there may be a sublime few moments of enjoying that space. And then quite quickly, one starts to feel rather... Um, sort of discombobulated rather um, disorientated, rather fearful sometimes. So on the one hand, we yearn to kind of resolve or relax this tight existential troubling of ourselves. And on the other hand, we see that we're, we're, you know, we're quite wedded to keeping it going. And in all kinds of activities, because we can't find that rest in the moment, we, we sort of delay it. We imagine that some rest, some certainty, some relief, some peace is kind of around the next corner. When such and such, or if only such and such were to happen. I've just got to get this done and then I'm going to relax. 
I wonder if you've ever said that to yourself. Right. And then, and yet, and the you know the famous uh, to-do list, and the belief, even though we keep adding things to it, that when it w when I've got those things done, then I'll relax. When I've cleaned the house, then I'll relax. When I've worked on this particular issue that troubles me, then I'll feel better, or I'll relax. When I've found a partner, or when I've gotten rid of the, this partner. <laughs> <laughs> and when we, when we look at that process, the process of delaying our ease, or peace of mind, and you know, almost like that donkey uh, pursuing the carrot on the stick. And the sense of it always remaining elusive, always out there, always somehow to be chased. So we don't find any ground, any rest. And yet we continue to believe that the ground or the rest or the relief is just out there somewhere. And then we come to a practice like this, maybe with the same thing, oh, when I get to retreat, I wonder if that thought's passed through your mind, when I get to retreat, then I'll be able to rest. And then you get to retreat. I was reminded today of a, of a, a line by by Jack Cornfield, describing practice, where he says, it's like jumping out of a plane and realizing you have no parachute. But then you realize there's no ground. <laughs> right? That's a, it's a strange image. <laughs> Sometimes it's an uncomfortable image. Sometimes people gasp a little when they hear the last bit. No ground. But of course it's only the ground, the, the sense of ground that makes any need for a parachute. We assume that the ground is out there somewhere, only to never quite catch up to it. And then we come to something like meditation, which puts a lot of emphasis on being present and being here and now. And we assume that the ground is here if I can only manage things a little, get some of my problems and thoughts out of the way. And yet that's the same process in a way. We're trying to find a ground, somewhere to land, a certainty. And even though we come to this kind of practice hoping for somewhere to land, called peace maybe, and we come to a practice like this hoping for certainty, which we might call truth, for example. And even though traditionally a lot of practices and traditions and religions offer the carrot of peace and truth to us, 
I'd like to present a vision of practice in a way which says no truth, no certainty, no place to land, no need for a parachute. And maybe that um, sounds disconcerting or alarming in some way. Because, like I say, that naturally our wish for uh, a, a, a refuge and some certainty, because, you know, there's that sense, even if you say that, a refuge and some certainty. Oh, yes, please. Buddhist tradition talks very much about refuge. But not refuges that we can hang on to very much. And those of you who are familiar with Buddhism, refuge of Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. Buddha means being awake. It's a pretty intangible refuge. Dhamma means the naturalness of things, the nature of experience in the way we've been exploring it and calling it nature, naturalness. Looking for a refuge in naturalness. The naturalness of being here. The naturalness of experience. Sangha means support. The refuge of feeling the way life is supporting us. Our very life is the proof and expression of that intangible sense of refuges and because our longing for a refuge and our longing for the certainty or truth is so strong we end up even in a tradition like Buddhism that that tries to point to the lack of the ambiguity of life the lack of certainty the lack of truth we end up with those things getting formalized formalized in some way so that we end up with various seeming and I would say seeming truths about the big themes of life the things that we're most concerned with life, death, self world and Buddhism or other religions try to give us a, 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 a a reassuring vision of life. Life is like this. Uh, a sense of meaning. So we have truths about life, truths about our place in life, truths about the creation of life. We mostly grew up with a sort of Judeo... Uh, well, we used to have said we'd grown up with a Judeo-Christian uh, view of the origin of life and our place in life. Now we might say we've grown up with the Judeo-Christian slash scientific rationalist material reductionist <laughs> view. Right? Our, our whole cultural education is sort of is tinged with elements of both of those. And we may subscribe to one or we might subscribe to another. One or other story, right? Which is all of those things are. The scientific story is as much a story as the religious stories. It seems to make more sense to us because it's part of our cultural background. In just the same way that other creation mythologies have made 
perfectly good sense to people who, who grew up in that background. But our practice encourages us to, rather than relying on a story about life, to meet life. And what we find when we meet the immediacy of life, this dance of sensation, this symphony of sound, this, this kind of fluid, fleeting movement of experience. There's not much we can say about it with great certainty. There doesn't seem to be much finding a landing place within it. And as I say, that can seem disconcerting, or troubling, confusing. And yet, in a way, that's the point. Maybe the peace, maybe the refuge, is the refuge of giving up, hoping for a refuge. Resting in no longer anxiously searching for a resting place. That's challenging, that's uh, uncomfortable in some ways, which is exactly why we, most of us, prefer certainty. A belief about how life came into being and what my place in it means. And then you can pick your own story. Right? The story you grew up with or the story that you then rejected and chose another story or the story that, uh, well, whichever one you like. And similarly with death. Death is very mysterious. The mysteriousness of death is quite uncomfortable. And so we have stories about death. It's the story of heaven and hell, or the story of rotting in the ground with nothing else, or the story of um, reincarnation or the story of rebirth, or, maybe I'm not going to go too far into those stories. It's interesting, and reflecting, and uh, speaking with uh, friends recently, and there's, there's, looking at the, there's a Pali word, bhava, which means becoming, and jati, which means uh, birth, or taking life. <coughs> And the Buddha always uses this word bhava rather than jati. It's interesting to think of that. So rather than speaking about rebirth, rebirth, the language actually is re-becoming. Re-becoming. We can choose to adopt one or other life view, one or other death view. And if we find some kind of solace in one of those views, then... Maybe that solace is helpful. But our practice invites us to 
well, to tolerate the uncertainty, the mysteriousness, the really not knowing, not knowing much about life. Right? I, I don't know. I mean, I have, a, I have a story, right? And of course, that story in conventional terms has a usefulness. I was born in 1970 in Sussex, da-da-da-da-da. But when I actually confront the sense of life and the proximity of death, the story is meaningless. I can't remember. My life is beginningless. All I can remember is becoming, becoming, becoming. I can't remember a start point like a light turning on. And all I can conceive of is more becoming. And all I find is becoming. This kind of momentum of life. The momentum that I can feel and recognize and notice going on inside me. The momentum that I can see and feel and uh, contemplate going on around me. We like certainty. We hope for certainty. We try to find certainty at the end of the to-do list or the shopping list or on the retreat. But certainty in a way is a kind of a dead thing. There's no more room left in certainty. Whereas not knowing, not knowing what this is, not knowing where this is going has a lot of room in it, a lot of possibility in it, has the whisper of mystery in it. Not knowing is the space to which, into which all kinds of seeings and knowings and discoveries can arise. We start off not knowing in a kind of deficient feeling way. Not knowing that's, that's coloured by our hope for certainty. Right? I don't know. I don't know about life. And I should know. Or I want to know. Or there must be a way to know. Or maybe that one knows. So I try to go from not knowing... Right, which feels like an, an insecure, deficient kind of not knowing, to a hoped-for kind of knowing. It's called certainty. And sometimes you find people in practices like this that have taken root in that place of knowing. And then will tell us that they know about life, and they know about death, and they know about self, and they know about world, and they know about mind, and they know... You can't listen to it for very long, generally. The, the kind of the, the reduction, reductive sense of knowing it's like this. Must have met people in these kind of spiritual scenes who seem to know a lot about things. And yet, up and and that sense of knowing sometimes very well seductive, sometimes helpful for a while, right? And we feel, oh, I found something that makes sense because there's something in the practice that makes sense to me. And so I want to adopt the, the certainty, rebirth, or there's no self. That's a place people swing from seeming self-evident sense of self to now I've got some new 
gleaming-eyed certainty that there is no self. A friend of mine posted an article a couple of days ago on Facebook, and then people have been responding to the article, and then it's just descended into some ghastly uh, back and forth about self or not self. <laughs> <laughs> So, certainty isn't, I would say, certainty isn't where the journey of our practice is pointing us. So it's pointing us from this early, uncomfortable, deficient feeling, not knowing, this existential malaise of not knowing, to, what might we call it, um, to an expansive not knowing, to a not knowing that's post-knowing. Right. A willingness to listen, feel, explore. A willingness to be surprised again and again by what we find. A capacity to um, meet and feel and explore what we find without drawing conclusions about it without drawing conclusions about who I am, how I am, what this is. And of course, conventional mind, the mind we're used to, doesn't do very well with not drawing conclusions. The mind that we're used to is used to this and that used to things being black and white. I think probably in a, in a kind of earlier evolutionary stages of being human, that kind of um, very clear one thing or the other was probably helpful to us. Right? One grunt for yes, two grunts for no. And in a way we, we might notice just our own normal uh, kind of the evolution of our own normal cognitive capacity is one where we're able to hold more nuances, more shades of grey, might say, when we're more able to see things from different perspectives. That's a feature of, of a kind of certain sort of psychological maturity. We spoke last night about these different areas that, that take up the space in mind that we're invited to be spacious around. And one of them, Buddha calls, the tendency to get caught in ideas of existence or non-existence. Something does exist or it doesn't exist. There is a self or there isn't a self. That's where certainty leads us, right? To defending some view that there is or there isn't. And conventional mind has to operate in one of those two places. So we find ourselves feeling like a self, 
in what seems to be a world. And yet, if we don't rely on our certainty, it's a strange relationship. It's an interesting relationship between self and world. Sometimes there only seems to be a self and no world. Sometimes there only seems to be a world and no self. Sometimes there seems to be both a self and a world. Sometimes there seems to be neither a self nor a world. Sometimes somebody was telling me a day or two ago, and maybe you had this experience, they were driving along, and then suddenly they realized they had no memory of the last 10 minutes of driving. And they were so caught up in the machinations of self that the world had effectively disappeared. All there was was a self. Sometimes it's so absorbed in the world of the self that we've forgotten the world. The world literally has disappeared. It's become non-existent. Sometimes at the end of meditation, I've mentioned the bird song. And it may be, what bird song? busy in the inner world that there is no the, in the, the, the story of self the feelings of self the preoccupations of self that the world has vanished so is there a world or isn't there we open our eyes we say of course there's a world so how come it can vanish every day the most common experience which is why it reinforces the sense that there is a self and there is a world, because in most common experience feels like there's both, that they've some invisible line between the two, and that experience is some sort of negotiation between what I call self and what I call world. In other words, some sort of negotiation between the one who's experiencing and all that's being experienced. In other moments, though, Sometimes this happens on retreat. Sometimes it might happen staring at the night sky or contemplating nature or uh, with a lover or in some other sort of sublime moment, usually a moment where there's a lot of relaxation, a lot of sensitivity. And the self-reflective mechanism, the way the self is constantly talking to the self about the self to reinforce the idea of the self, quietens down or thins out and the world the sense of the world stands out the sunset the sky the touch of the lover and the self that's experiencing it just thins out to the point of irrelevance and it's only after the experience when the self reconstellates that one has the perspective that, oh, it felt like I wasn't there. Zen haiku says, we sat there together, the mountain and I, until only the mountain remained. Fine, exquisite little uh, expression of that kind of feeling that we sometimes have in in the wonder of nature, a sense of disappearing into the world. go to sleep each night and both the world and the self disappears 
And the better the night's sleep, the more they disappear. When we wake up, we say, wow, I had a really great night's sleep. What we mean is, the world completely disappeared, the self completely disappeared. That's what counts as a good, really good night's sleep. Sometimes world and self don't quite disappear, and we say, oh, I didn't sleep so well. If you consider, what do we mean by that? I was kind of aware of self, aware of bed, aware of the whatever. So there we go. Sometimes there's self and no world. Sometimes there's world and no self. Sometimes there's self and world seeming to meet and, and interact. And sometimes there's neither self nor world. The fact that the world and the self can completely disappear into deep sleep, only to reconfigure themselves again, to bounce back into existence the next morning, Most people aren't interested. Sounds like crazy stuff. But being on retreat is a good opportunity to look at what we call self and what we call world. Not to establish some Buddhist certainty about whether there is a self or isn't, but as a way into living with the ambiguity, the fluidity, the, what the Buddha exquisitely, two and a half thousand years ago, the Buddha looks at this stuff and someone asks him, what's the truth of these things? And he says, well, it's hard to speak about. He said, but the nearest I can get is not one, not the other, not both, and not neither. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, we've, we've jumped out of the plane. We might be hoping for a parachute. We might be, find ourselves, in a given moment, bracing because of the assumed ground. But we're here to learn to fall freely. Everyday mind, everyday description of self and world and life and death and our imagined reference points and our hoped for refuges. Just, they just can't do justice to the unimaginable way that falling, gliding can open up for us. And if that's the promise of this practice, then each appearance of what we call self, or what we call other, or what we call world, or what we call my life, etc., is an opportunity to look past what we think we don't know, 
and to look past what we think we should know or what we're trying to know and to sense and allow and explore then in doing so to cultivate the capacity for ambiguity for not knowing for a wide open space of possibility That's where our practice is pointing us or inviting us. And with some sincerity and consistency, this is how life opens up to us. Okay.